Well, good morning. I am shorter than Pastor Patrick, so don't get confused. And I'm not nearly, nearly as caring as Joe. Um, <laughs> that is just too funny, man. You are a hoot, Joe. Uh, we are in part four of our series called To Change a Life. And we are looking at specific instances in which people encountered Christ and saw their lives transformed. In fact, that is the very nature of God. He loves us too much to leave us where we are at. He is continually wanting the best for our lives and is actively working to that end. When we encounter Christ, we have the opportunity to be deeply transformed. And I say opportunity because we have a choice in the matter. It doesn't happen automatically. And when we kicked off the series on Easter Sunday, Pastor Patrick looked at the two thieves being crucified with Jesus. Each had opposing beliefs on Christ's deity, and each encountered Christ, but had different trajectories for their eternities, as one accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, and the other rejected him. Today, we again are looking at one encounter with Jesus and two opposing responses to that encounter. And incidentally, this event takes place about a week prior to Jesus hanging on the cross with those two thieves. Let's read John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. If you have your own Bible, we also have it up on the, up on the screen in the version that I'll be reading. It says this, Jesus, therefore, six days before Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. And Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned for the poor, but because he was a thief. As he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Or another way of putting it would be, leave her alone. She intended to keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. If you were to poke around the other Gospels, you would see that this story is also recorded in Matthew and also in Mark. They have a high degree of similarities. And in fact, when they talk about Judas and his reaction, they use the word indignant. It's almost as if he's offended by Mary's offering. And here we have Lazarus and his sisters giving Jesus what looks to be an appreciation dinner. And if you haven't caught it, Back up one chapter to John chapter 11, and you'll see that Lazarus died. He died and he was buried. And when the writers say that he was dead, they really mean he was dead. We're talking about like four days of dead. We're talking about a body is starting to decompose type of dead. We're talking about something that can't be remedied with CPR and a, a portable defibrillator. He was dead. He croaked. And Mary and Martha had to grieve. 
They had to go through the burial preparations. They had to go through all that loss. They experienced it. And so it is no surprise that when they have an opportunity to have Jesus with them and celebrate and say thank you, they seize that opportunity. It was a big deal for this trio of siblings for what Christ had done and how he had impacted their life. And we can't miss that fact. Raising Lazarus from the dead was the final miracle prior to Jesus himself being raised from the dead on Easter Sunday. It set the stage for the ultimate showdown of God's sovereignty over sin and death. It was also the last stop before Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we celebrated on Palm Sunday. Christ's death on the cross is just days away when we read this story about Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and Judas. The raising of Lazarus from the dead was also the straw that broke the camel's back. Oh, it ticked off some people. It was then that the Jewish leaders committed to arresting Jesus. And in fact, they even considered killing Lazarus. You talk about a bum bum rap. You're dead. You're not dead. You're dead again. These Jewish leaders were threatened by Jesus. They were threatened by the lives that were changed. They were threatened by the truth of Christ that opposed their lifestyle of lies. And ironically, Jesus was no longer welcomed in his own home, the glorious temple that Solomon had built and that had been rebuilt over time. In what was called the house of the Lord, the Lord was no longer welcomed. So Jesus went to where he was welcomed, to Bethany, two miles southeast of of Jerusalem, on the road that leads towards Jericho. It was basically a suburb of the city. I guess you could have even called it South Suburban. You like that? You guys are too kind, thanks. For us as a church, though, it is a stark reminder that just because a building is dedicated to God doesn't mean that God is automatically going to be there. He should be welcomed, honored, and praised. And we invite the presence of God in this place today and into our lives. What started out as a normal celebration took a turn as Mary brought in her alabaster container of perfume. All eyes were on her. And the Bible has a lot of different Marys. There's Mary, um, the mother of Jesus, so let's not confuse the two. There's Mary Magdalene, and there's also a smattering of other Marys that are associated with the apostles and the other church leaders. This Mary is commonly known as Mary of Bethany, because they didn't use a whole lot of last names. So we'll go with Mary of Bethany. Makes it simple. The perfume of pure nard that she has is the oddest sounding name for any product I've ever heard. Nard. It was an essential oil, and I can't imagine it showing up on any catalog nowadays. Hey, honey, I bought some essential oils. They should be coming in the mail. Oh, I got nard. Great. Gross. No. But nard then was costly. It came from the spike nard plant, and it was imported from India. And the process to extract the essential oils from that plant was long and laborious and therefore added to the cost in addition to the transportation and importation from the east. And it's been used for centuries. The Bible refers to it as pure nard. 
to high quality. It's not imitation. It's not diluted. And it was worth 300 denarii, according to Lazarus. Now, a denarii is essentially a day's wage. So we're talking basically at 300 denarii an entire year's salary. So take your salary, put it in a jar, (laughs) and give it to Jesus, right? (laughs) Like, wait, are we taking another offering? No, we're not. (laughs) That's not the point of the message. You're missing it. But it was a huge sacrifice to Mary. It was a powerful moment of worship. And though it was an expensive offering, the price tag is not what caught Jesus' attention. It never really does. Rather, it was perhaps the first time that the reality of his imminent death was being acknowledged. It was being acknowledged not by one of those with an official title or role from his entourage, but rather by someone whose life had been changed as she encountered Christ. As Mary poured out the oil, she did not hold back at all. A token gesture, a perfunctory action would not be appropriate. For Mary, it was all or nothing. For Jesus meant everything to her. Her Lord deserved her best. She was courageous in what she was doing. We can't miss that fact because she knew it went against the cultural norms and the religious traditions of that day. But that wasn't gonna stop her from honoring the Lord. It wasn't gonna get in the way. All eyes on her didn't matter. And I don't believe it would have taken much for the priests, the religious leaders of that day, to include her in their plans, in their plots, to kill Jesus. But for Mary, it was well worth it, well worth the risk. So though the disciples were slow in grasping the big picture of Christ's mission, Mary was catching on. She had seen the power and the authority of Jesus over sin and death, and it had hit her close to home. She knew the prophecies of the Messiah and the teachings of Jesus. She had put the puzzle pieces together and was seeing all that God was up to. She had her part to play in preparing Christ for his death, burial, and resurrection. For Mary's mission, she wanted to praise God. She wanted to pour out praise, no matter the cost. Judas, though, was a different story. In contrast, he just didn't get it. If the disciples were a few fries shy of a happy meal, Judas didn't even get the cheeseburger. If the disciples were on the elevator that didn't go to the top, Judas was still in the basement. Though the disciples were slow in understanding all that Christ really was, Judas acted in opposition to all that Christ really was. And that is such a dangerous place to be. To stand in between of God's objectives, between God and what he wants to accomplish in someone's life. That is bold. You may think that I'm being a little hard on Judas, but I'm not. Look what the gospel writers even did. For almost every time he is mentioned throughout the gospels, including the events prior to him actually betraying Christ, he is noted as the one who would betray Christ, who became a traitor. And to this day, his name lives in infamy and is used to characterize deviants, traitors, and backstabbers. 
For the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry, Judas was a participant. He wasn't just a bystander. He was in the thick of it. He was watching fish and loaves of bread multiply to feed thousands. He saw the sea become become calm at the command of the Creator. He saw lepers heal, blind given sight, and dead men walking. He was on the teams of disciples being sent out to preach the gospel, heal the sick, and take authority over evil spirits. Judas certainly had his own encounters with Christ. We can't miss that fact. Yet what difference did it make? When a person's heart is hard and corrupt, filled with bitterness and resentment, gripes and complaints, they most assuredly can miss the hand of God. Even that hand that is giving you a piece of bread in a cup of wine. That, such a dangerous place to be. When Matthew and Mark characterize his response or Judas's response as indignation, they are speaking less about the words of Judas, more about the heart of Judas. Luke says it best in Luke chapter six, verse 45. And he's describing the fruit that a person is supposed to be producing. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. And the word treasury is so powerful. Because it is something that gets filled up and then has withdrawals. We have to fill it up. We choose what goes into our heart, don't we? That's our choice. That's our decision. It is wise to not judge a book by its cover. You need to see what's inside to detect its true intent. For Judas, his true intentions were self-serving. It is what he had been depositing in his heart for some time, and soon he would make an enormous withdrawal in betraying Christ. In public, what Judas was advocating for sounded good. I mean, after all, it's feeding the poor, helping those in need. We should be doing that kind of a thing. But Jesus knew exactly what was at the heart of that statement. He had different intentions. And John totally calls him out on that, declaring that Judas was stealing from the funds Jesus used for ministry. Judas was literally robbing from God. That's bold. That's brazen. And that is such a dangerous place to be. And you've probably run into people like Judas. Folks that offer ideas and suggestions or passionately advocate for a perspective, which isn't bad at all, but whose motives are suspect. They are family members and coworkers, teammates and maybe even neighbors. Here's a scary thought. They could even be churchgoers and Christ followers. Oh yeah, Christ followers. Wasn't Judas a Christ follower? None of us are immune. We can all fall into that kind of trap, into that kind of thinking. And if you've heard a sermon or two in your lifetime or read the Bible cover to cover, you've undoubtedly come across the verse in John chapter 15, verse five. And this is Christ speaking, but he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
And is it a powerful text that speaks to our need for constant connectedness, connectedness with Christ? Yet we cannot miss the first verse, and it can be tough. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And as we prepare for summer in Colorado, we get this, don't we? We clear out the flower beds. We prune the rose bushes. We cut down the tree branches that have been broken because of snowfall that happens only in April, apparently, in Colorado. We have to do the pruning. And the pruning can feel like it hurts. You can look at it afterward and say, ooh, I'm not sure about this. But you know as the gardener that it's the right thing to do. And we can trust that we have a heavenly father that knows what's best for us. He's not trying to ruin our lives. He's not trying to get back at us. He's trying to help us grow, to help us have the life that he intended for us to have, that life of freedom, that life of wholeness and holiness. And our heavenly father is a gardener. He's a busy gardener. Seven billion people on this planet. He's constantly at work in my life and in your life. He's pruning away. The role and dream of the gardener is to bring forth life. And Judas had spent plenty of time being around Jesus. He was obvious, but it, it was obvious that he didn't abide with Jesus. He missed it. And as such, his heart became hardened and poisoned. Where Mary poured out praise, Judas poured out poison. He was toxic. He was dangerous. We've had a chance to contrast Mary and Judas, but there is still one more person that we need to look at this morning. Nope, it's not Jesus. It's not going to be Martha. It's not going to be Lazarus. It's going to be you. It's going to be me. It would be a disservice to look at the two lives if we didn't also look at our own life. So don't worry, though. I'll be gentle. The one thing I would ask, though, is in the next couple of minutes, is that you allow God to speak to whatever he needs to in your life. Are there areas in your life that are off limits to God? Where you say, mm mm, don't touch that. Oh, not that one, too tender. Let me encourage you to even let those go. Because you've got a gardener that loves you very much and wants to prune and wants to help. I imagine the simplest way to ask what needs to be asked is when your cup gets bumped, what spills out? What gets you riled up? What is like nails on a chalkboard for you? With a two and a three-year-old in my house, there are plenty of opportunities to have nails on chalkboards and cups bumped, sometimes literally. And to bump my coffee cup is a very dangerous thing. Crayons on walls, potty training accidents, random noises, but my kids have gotten used to my random noises, so it's okay. 
If you're stuck on, on ideas, let me help you. I'm going to offer you some ideas on maybe what kind of gets you riled up, all right? You ready? We're going to keep it simple, safe, right? Here's, a, here's kind of a compilation of a top 10 of things that coworkers do that annoy the snot out of us. So maybe you know someone that you've worked with in the past. Hopefully you're not that person who's committed one of these offenses. But um, you know, keep it simple. What about the person that just kind of makes those random noises? They're, they're chewing ice loudly. They're always snacking on something that's just like, what is that going over there? All right. There's the person that wears the strong perfume or the cologne. Just so overpowering. What about the person that microwaves their lunch in the break room, but then brings it back to the work area and shares that strong smell with everyone else for the remainder of the day and is not willing to share it? Like, come on. There's, of course, the person that's always distracted, checking social media. The person that you're having a one-on-one conversation with stops to pick up their phone and start texting back. You've never done that, right? Then, of course, there's the person that comes to work sick, shares the love, coughs, and then hands you something. Then there's a person that steals food out of the fridge. I swear I put my name on that Coke can that's in there. There's a person that's singing with headphones on. There's the other person that's talking loudly on the phone, so you can't make your phone calls. What about the person with bad hygiene, B.O., bad habits? (laughs) And then, of course, there's the person that's just too needy. They just can't do something for themselves, leaves the jam in the copier, (laughs) leaves a mess all over the place. There's all sorts of opportunities at work for people to just to drive us bonkers, to bump our cup. And I've been thinking about doing a list of like top 10 things that like spouses do to irritate us. But I was afraid that would kind of make the, uh, the drive home a little awkward. So there are plenty of people though that love us dearly that annoy the snot out of us. It's not a question of if, it's more of a question of when. When someone does something that annoys you, that upsets you, that offends you, how do you respond? Does your response bring praise to God or poison to the relationship? That last part in your notes answers this question. What will you pour out? When you get bumped, what's gonna come out? Many relationships, missions, and endeavors have been set off course because we focus on the small stuff. We make a mountain out of a molehill. We forget who our opponent really is. Paul, in writing to the church in Ephesus, said it best, and it's one of my favorite scripture verses. For he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Judas missed that there was more at work than what he could see with his eyes. Though there is a loving and a gracious God with our best interests at heart, there is also an evil one who looks to poison our lives, to distract us from God's very best, to live a life that is unfulfilled. It is up to us to choose 
what we will pour out of our lives. Galatians chapter five is a tough chapter to swallow, but it's so powerful for the believer. Paul writes to the church in Galatia that we are to live by the spirit and not by the desires of our flesh, what comes naturally for us. In chapter five, five verse 16 through 17, he says, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do what you want. It's not as easy as it sounds. And churches around the world are proof of that fact. We are flawed and frail. There is no perfect church. And our sin nature is in conflict with the very plan and purpose that God has for us. A life of freedom, of wholeness, and of holiness. And I believe it is safe to say that Judas was living according to the flesh. You couldn't know the condition of his heart until there was an outward expression, until his cup got bumped. And that expression ultimately culminated in the betrayal of Jesus. Now, we don't all go to that extreme, but we cannot deceive ourselves in thinking that we are better than we really are. We're pretty flawed. And Paul writes a lot about the flesh. It is essentially our default setting, what we naturally do. You don't have to learn it. You just grow into it. And that's the price of being in a fallen world and in need of a savior. The flesh is just what naturally grows out of our souls. If you were to continue on in, the, in Galatians chapter five, you would read about what is commonly referred to as the fruit of the spirit. We've got a little garden theme going on today, I guess. And these are characteristics such as love and joy, peace and patience. Those sound pretty positive, don't they? Pretty des desirable. But let's not forget the other half of the list, like kindness and goodness, gentleness and faithfulness. Paul says that against such things, there is no law. It's never illegal to do something good, kind, to be patient. You guys are tough. Some of you guys have been in the church too long. You know there's a ninth one. I left it out. I don't like that one. There's also self-control. It's what separates us from wild beasts. We have a brain. We're supposed to use self-control. We're supposed to live holy lives. We're supposed to make good choices. We're supposed to choose God's way, not our way. These characteristics or fruit should be in the life of every believer. For when we say yes to Jesus, we are inviting his spirit to give our spirit new life. It is God in us. He gives us a new life, a new beginning, a fresh start. And our lives are to become fertile soil for the fruit of the spirit. It should flourish. It should grow. It should take over in our lives. Because this means that Christ's followers should be the most joyful, the most patient, the most self-controlled. It's not because we are better than others, but because we have Christ set on the throne 
of our lives. So how's that working for you? Don't answer that out loud. I won't. How do you respond when a dog walker leaves a mess in your front lawn? What is your reaction when someone cuts you off on the road or goes at a snail's pace in the left lane? When your server refills your glass with club soda instead of Sprite, how do you respond? When coworkers do things, kids do things, spouses do things, strangers do things. Ooh, here's a fun one. What about when God does things in your life that are awkward, that are unsettling, that are uncomfortable? How do you respond? A final verse I'd like to share is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. It says this, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. You and I are gonna face challenges. Our cups are going to get bumped. Expect it, plan on it. But you and I both know that if we lean on God, if he is in our jar of clay, we can overcome, we can prevail. The spirit of God that is in us that is more powerful than the spirit that is in this world can have his way in our lives. We can make an impact. Those jars of clay, us is just a simply a cracked pot. We're supposed to have more of Christ in our lives. We're supposed to take what God has given us and share that with a world that doesn't know him. So what are we pouring out? Are we pouring out the light and life of Christ? Or are we pouring out poison? We've been looking at the lives change when a person encounters Jesus Christ. For Mary of Bethany, she poured out her praise. For Judas Iscariot, he poured out poison. What are you pouring out? What is coming out of you? Would you join with me in prayer? Lord, 